Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. There were comments that said, hey, why isn't it open to people with MBAs? Why isn't it open to finance professionals? Maybe not every lawyer is qualified to be able to understand the merits and risks, but certainly a lawyer like myself or other corporate attorneys or business attorneys that have that kind of direct knowledge, why wouldn't it be open to them? Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, we've got a returning guest. We welcome Kim Lisa Taylor. She's a nationally recognized corporate securities attorney, speaker, and the author of the number one Amazon bestselling book, How to Legally Raise Private Money. She's the founder of Syndication Attorneys, PLLC, and InvestorMarketingMaterials.com, whose purpose is to provide quality legal advice, offering documents, and professionally designed marketing materials for clients nationwide. Kim has been the responsible attorney for hundreds of security offerings, and she routinely teaches subjects related to legally raising private money in front of groups ranging from 50 to 1,000 plus attendees. Kim, thank you very much for joining us back on the show today. We have a, yeah, absolutely. We have a, a special episode today, very timely in the news. You know, I saw that the SEC has amended the definition of an accredited investor. And I thought that there would be no one better to explain to us what exactly happened than Kim, who spends her life, as we said, working with the SEC and working with investors and making sure that we are all staying compliant and staying within the lines. And so... With that, Kim, I know that you've written an article on the topic and I wanted to just do that. Just get your thoughts. First, maybe explain to us again, because I think there's a lot of folks that, that still may not understand exactly what is an accredited investor and what has that meant historically? And then how has it changed? What does this mean for us? Sure. So, you know, there's kind of two categories of the accredited investor definition. Actually, originally there were eight 
definitions of an accredited investor. And two of them pertain to the individual investors, which the SEC refers to as retail investors. So retail investors are your individual, someone that you know, your friends, your family, acquaintances that are investing either their savings or self-directed IRAs. Those are the people that we're referring to when we say retail investors versus the other types of investors are people who are investing through a trust, or maybe their own fund, maybe some kind of a bank or institutional investor. That's kind of the other category is retail investors versus institutional investors. So family offices, investment banks, employee benefit plans, those kinds of things. So I think it's helpful for your audience if we kind of break it out on those two categories, because most of our clients are dealing with the retail investors. We do have some clients that have kind of graduated from just having retail investors in their deals and are now starting to do some joint ventures or preferred equity with some of these other institutional or quasi-institutional investors. So the original definition included any natural person who had individual net worth or joint net worth with the person's spouse that exceeded a million dollars, okay, and that excludes any equity in their primary residence and any indebtedness that was incurred within 60 days prior to the investment. The reason for that 60-day thing is because people used to actually borrow money and then use it to invest, and they don't want people to do that anymore. They wanted to make sure they weren't doing that. The other definition that pertains to natural persons is any natural person who has $200,000 a year income individually or $300,000 if they're married. And it has to be for the last two years with an expectation it's going to continue into this current year. Another definition is any entity in which all of the equity owners are accredited investors. So somebody has an LLC and there's two or three people in it, as long as all three of them are accredited investors, then that would qualify as an accredited investor. And then also there's a category that pertains to the people in management of that syndicate. So it's any director, executive officer, general partner of the issuer of the securities that is involved in the management. They are by definition considered an accredited investor. So that just means that if you're the syndicator, you're a member of the management team in a syndicate, you don't have to qualify by means of these financial tests. You just have to qualify just by virtue of your role in management. So that's kind of the private individual's retail investor definition that we've had up until now. So this new amended definition added a couple of things that could be helpful, but only marginally, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't think that the SEC went quite far enough. And what happens is they put out these proposed rules and then they solicit comments for at least 90 days. And, you know, they get a lot of comments from other lawyers, individuals, big investors, but also from FINRA, who is kind of the broker dealer registration group that oversees the registration and regulation of broker dealers. And they always try to block anything that's going to open up investing to ordinary people that don't have to go through them because they have a vested interest in, in protecting the livelihoods of their constituents. So the SEC gives a lot of weight to all of those questions. And you can actually read all of the comments that they got. And we have this article and we'll give you a link to that in a little bit. But in that article, there is a link to the actual final rule, which is 166 pages long. 
that does the analysis of here was the proposed rule, here were all the comments we got, and here's what the final rule is going to be. And then also there will be a synopsis that the SEC created a press release and sent out a synopsis of what the final rule was, and that link will be there as well. But anyway, so what is new? What's been included? So they've added a category for a natural person with Series 765 or 82 securities licenses. So, you know, the question I ask all of my clients when I'm talking to them about this is, okay, so how many of those people do you know? <laughs> I always get dead silent. Yeah. You know, It's probably not very many people. No, it really isn't that many people. So unless you just happen to know people in the securities world that happen to have one of those licenses, and also they've excluded some of the other licenses like a Series 22 that could have been even more inclusive. So if you know people that have those kinds of licenses, and the other question is, are they really going to invest with you? Because they're probably already exposed to a whole lot of securities and you've got to convince them that your deal is worth it. So the one thing that's interesting, though, is that the SEC did reserve the ability to add new categories who hold certain professional designations or certifications, and they can do that by order. So they don't have to actually go back and go through the rulemaking process and the public comment period and all that. They could just decide, hey, we're just going to open it up to this and add it. So they're looking for people, if they do that expanded definition, which we really hope they will, then that could be big because then they could include people like lawyers, CPAs, finance professionals, people who should have the ability to be able to evaluate the risks and merits of an offering on their own. So anyway, so right now, doctors, lawyers, CPAs, finance professionals, sorry, we didn't make it, but certain securities registrations did. That's one category. There's two more categories that they added that pertain to the retail investors. One is a knowledgeable employee of a private fund. So we had already the definition that included the director, executive officer, general partner, so people who are actually in management. But now if your syndicate employs people as employees, then they could become a knowledgeable employee of a private fund and they would be able to also invest in the fund. So that's how it's nice. It's like the people actually working on the deal can now actually invest in the deal. Right. And without having to be an executive officer, general partner, or management. And then the third category, and perhaps this one will be helpful, is spousal equivalent. Okay. And so maybe that one hasn't gotten quite enough press, but I think it's great and it's important that we embrace the inclusivity that, hey, not everybody is going to go through the traditional marriage process. And there are certainly other people that are combining their finances for every other thing under the sun. Why shouldn't they be allowed to combine their resources to invest in this? And so I think that's a good thing. What is spousal equivalent? How is that different from what they said before, where you have your joint income? being Well, because you had to actually be married before. Okay. So now they've opened it up to people who are not actually married, maybe because of some regulation that prevents them, or they're just cohabitating or, you know, whatever they consider to be spousal equivalents. And if you want to dive deep into that, then read the final rule. And there's a discussion in that final rule about what that includes and what it doesn't include. But, you know, I think it's an attempt to make it inclusive for perhaps what used to be an excluded group and perhaps unfairly. I think they gotcha. call it the dual income, no kids. They're called dinks. Right. <laughs> okay. For our spousal equivalent, you know, have two incomes. They don't have kids. They've yeah. got plenty of disposable income. Let them go ahead and pool their resources to qualify as so a is it, investor. 
Gotcha. So is it that they have to meet those same requirements though, as what would have previously been a married couple of either their income- The income or the net worth requirement, right. But they don't have to be married in order to demonstrate that they're eligible. So that could be helpful. I think that one might be helpful. The thing is, is how do you market on that? How do you make that marketable for your offering? Well, I think you need to inform people that, hey, you don't have to be married in order to do this. If you have a spousal equivalent, you can now pool your resources and still qualify as an accredited investor as long as you meet this net worth or this income test. Gotcha. That is interesting. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. And I like that. So now for the non-retail quasi-institutional investors. So the previous definition included a bank's insurance company, registered investment companies, the securities broker dealers, a couple other categories, but companies that are registered that have said, hey, we are an investment company and that's what we do. And so they've always been allowed to be qualified as accredited investors. There's another an employee benefit plan. So if you had a company that has an employee benefit plan and it's making the investments on behalf of its members, then that could work, but you still have to have a bank insurance company or registered investment advisor making the investment decisions on behalf of that plan, or if the plan has over $5 million in assets. So it's one or the other. So it has to be an employee benefit plan, either has to have some registered investment advisor or advisor to that plan making the investment decisions, or it has to have over $5 million in assets. Charitable organizations is a third category that's always been there. Charitable organization, corporation, or partnership, if the assets of that entity exceed $5 million. A business in which all of the equity owners are accredited investors and a trust with assets in excess of $5 million. So your family trust or a family office or something like that could probably have always qualified underneath that if it had a trust as its entity. And as long as the trust was not formed specifically to acquire those interests. So that's the old definition. So let's see what's been added. Okay, so all that stuff is still there. Now we've just got some new additions to that. So there was clarification that any LLC with $5 million in assets can be accredited investors. And then also there are some other categories that were added. So any kind of an SEC or state registered investment advisor or anybody who holds himself out to be an investment advisor. And then there's something else called a rural business investment company that is another entity that can still qualify. There's a new category for any entity, including Indian tribes, governmental bodies, funds and entities organized under the laws of foreign countries that own investments in excess of $5 million, not formed for the specific purpose of investing. So, you know, I mean, there could be some opportunities there to reach out to some of these other groups. Uh, and you probably have to do some digging to find out who they are. And then once you do, you could potentially do a targeted marketing campaign to them where you would explain to them what kinds of things your company is investing in and find out if that might be something that they would now be interested in investing in. And then the third category that they added for the non-retail investors is the family offices with at least $5 million in assets under management. So that's the other category. So I think the family offices was probably always there, but now perhaps they don't have to have the $5 million in assets before they're able to invest if they're holding themselves out as family office. And maybe this was from the initial piece of the old rule or some of the initial comments on this one, but wasn't there an idea at one point that if you were being advised by someone that had 
a certain financial advisor or something that you might be able to invest in these type of investments. And it sounds like that just didn't make it through. So what you're thinking of is a sophisticated investor. So if you're doing a Reg D Rule 506C offering, then each investor would have to meet one of these definitions of an accredited investor. Now, just a caveat that these rules are not in effect yet. Okay. They still have to be published for a 60 day period in the federal register before they take effect. So it's usually a lag time of a week or two before they get into the federal register. Then they're going to have to cure for 60 days and then they'll take effect. So we're looking at sometime before the end of the year, these will be effective and then you'll be able to start using them. So if we're going to do a 506C offering, the retail or non-retail investor would have to provide some kind of verification that they meet one of these tests. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do a Regulation D Rule 506B offering, then you're allowed to include unlimited accredited investors, an unlimited number of accredited investors, and they don't have to be verified. They can self-certify. So they can say that, yes, I do meet this. And you don't have to do any kind of further inquiry unless you have reason to believe that it's untrue. Then in that case, you would be obligated to either further inquire or deny them. But in 506B, you can also include up to 35 non-accredited but sophisticated investors. And sophisticated means people who are, by means of their education, financial background, or investing experience, have the ability to understand the merits and risks of the offering, either by themselves or with the help of their investment advisor. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably what you were referring to is that somebody who's not accredited, if they have a financial advisor that looks at the offering and says, this is good for your portfolio, yes, you should do it. They would actually have to complete the subscription agreement mm-hmm. on behalf of that investor as the one who's making the decisions. And that person cannot be connected to your offering. So you can't hire an investment okay. advisor to look at their stuff for them. It has to be somebody they've employed on their own. Right. Okay. No, I think that's helpful to understand. So the rule's been amended. It's been expanded. It sounds like there is some more inclusivity in the folks that can now invest in these types of private deals. Is this the tip of the iceberg? Is this them opening up to continued expansion? Or was this kind of moving the mountain and now we're there? What's your thought? Yeah, I think that the SEC got a lot of resistance. There was certainly a proposal to include these certain professional certifications and designations beyond just Mm -hmm. securities licensees in the original proposal. But I think that there was a lot of resistance and pushback. So the SEC just said, you know, in the interest of getting this passed right now, let's just go ahead and pass what's acceptable to the majority and and what FINRA is proposing and and really a proponent of and at least get that through. And then they reserved the right that by order they could add other people as they saw fit. So, you know, I think that there's probably going to be some continuing pressure to make that group a little bit more inclusive. And honestly, there were comments that said, hey, why isn't it open to people with MBAs? Why isn't it open to finance professionals? Maybe not every lawyer is qualified to be able to understand the merits and risks, but certainly a lawyer like myself or other corporate attorneys or business attorneys that have that kind of direct knowledge, why wouldn't it be open to them? And why not to CPAs that do business tax returns? They're certainly savvy to all of that stuff. 
Right. Yeah. And a lot of it, probably like most things comes down, as you said, there's some lobbying involved, right? And there's, yeah, I think there's some there's lobbying. a lot of organizations that have an incentive not to have folks invest in private deals and continue to invest in the old ways of investing. I mean, there's a lot of value in those organizations. You know, I'm not trying to discount the value of those organizations. They are designed to protect investors from unscrupulous people who would otherwise take their money and run with it. Mm -hmm. And they're designed to help and prevent fraud in these kinds of offerings. Because when you do use a federal licensed professional or registered investment advisor, then they're going to be trained to look at these offerings and to help you sort out whether it is appropriate for your portfolio. And it really doesn't matter if you're accredited or you're not accredited, but trying to qualify as sophisticated you know, maybe you're too busy. Maybe this isn't your thing. You don't like looking at this kind of stuff. You're the operations guy. If you have somebody that can help you look at those things and help you determine if it's an appropriate investment or if there's any red flags there that you might not notice, then why not do that? So, I mean, we've reviewed offering documents on behalf of clients before. And what we typically do is look to see if they're following securities laws. And do we understand the deal? Does it make sense to us? You know, because I've seen some deals that the waterfall is 16 steps long and it's incomprehensible. And I see a lot of documents from a lot of bigger firms that are very hard to decipher and understand. And there's a lot of cross-referencing and a lot of unique terminology. And it becomes very difficult for an ordinary person to really understand what they're getting into. So sometimes it's helpful if you employ an attorney to kind of help you sort out what it all means and kind of read between the lines. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, some investments, they are very complex, right? And, and the documents that come with them are very complex. And so there is absolutely the need to be able to understand what you're getting into, right? And that's essentially what these rules are, are about is trying to set barriers to protect people from bad actors from folks that would be, you know, committing fraud or unfavorable deals, right? And making it too complicated to really understand what you're getting into. Well, yeah. And sometimes I feel like it's intentionally made so complicated that the only people that can interpret it are the attorneys that drafted the documents, which is unfortunate because if there is ever a dispute, then all of a sudden it just becomes much more expensive to try to sort it out because you've got these various interpretations and it's very complex. And so, you know, our firm prides itself on writing documents in plain English that both our clients and their investors understand. We've gotten a lot of compliments from or clients' investors saying, you know, hey, I've read a bunch of these and this is the first one I really understood. And we took great pains to kind of look at these clauses and say, what are we really trying to say here? Let's just rewrite right. this in a way that makes sense. Right, and remove the legalese. No, I think that's a fantastic service because, yeah, most of them are extremely complicated and it makes it difficult for, for those investors to really understand. And with any investment, you want to be very confident what you're getting into. Well, but it's not just the investors. It's also the syndicator themselves. If they don't understand what the attorney has written for them, how are they possibly going to comply with it? They're always going to have yeah. to go back to that attorney to interpret every time they want to make a distribution or pay themselves a fee or do something different. So that can become costly and maybe you pay less for the documents up front, yeah. but more for the documents in the end. You know? Yeah, that's securing a revenue stream. Right yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> This is great. I think I appreciate your interpretation, some of the history around what went into it and the different 
comments and guidelines. I mean, it's a balance for me. I believe that some of these private investments are way better than deals and investments you can get publicly. You know, so there are great ones out there and it is an opportunity to build wealth in a way that can far exceed typical gains you get from the stock market. But there are a lot of risks, right? And there are bad actors out there and there are folks that are doing bad deals. So I get the balance. Do you ever see it opening up further? Do you ever see there being like a test where you could take a test and qualify as someone who understands these deals? I mean, do you ever think it could go that far? Or how would you see it expanding further? Would it just kind of make yeah, it? Yeah, I have not ever contemplated that before, but certainly I think that was the point that FINRA and, and the commenters that were proponents of these securities licensees getting included in this expanded definition, I think that was their point, that these people have gone through that training and that process of understanding investments. So therefore, they should be allowed, you know, would it make sense to have an accredited investor test where you have to go through some kind of a more formalized training program? So you get to know and understand what's a PPM, what's an operating agreement, what's a subscription agreement? How does it work? How does this different from a public versus a private offering? I think that's a fantastic idea. And so is general likely to come up with something like that? You know, who knows? It'd be a great idea if they did. Are there other ways that somebody could do that? The ways that I suggest that investors get educated, and I've seen a lot of investors educating themselves this way, is they attend the same kind of training classes that the syndicators they are investing with are going through. And so if you're learning the same thing that the syndicators are learning, then you're learning how they underwrite deals and how they conduct due diligence and what deals make sense and don't make sense and what the documents are and what they mean. So, you know, right now, in the absence of any formalized training to become an accredited investor, I think that's probably the best course for people. Follow any of the real estate trainers that are out there that are teaching people how to buy the asset class that you're interested in investing in and just get to know it that way. And in the same time, you're going to meet a lot of other people that are in those training courses that are actually finding the deals and putting the groups together. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think that that's kind of a general theme throughout the show is as a, even a passive investor, You have to educate yourself and you have to be just as educated, as you said, as the syndicators, because you need to understand the deals. No one should enter a deal blindly that they don't understand the mechanics behind and how the underwriting was done and how the returns will be paid, right? So I completely agree with you. Well, that, and you have to understand the distribution waterfall. You know, if it doesn't make sense to you or it seems too complicated and you don't get it, then it would be cautious of investing in that deal. We try to get our clients to write fairly simplistic distribution waterfalls because we know that that's easily marketable. And the more complex it gets, the less marketable it becomes because investors are going to look at it, they don't understand it, and they're going to say no. So just make sure. And we do have an article on our website at syndicationattorneys.com. It's called 10 Things Investors Should Know Before Investing in a Syndicate. So that's one that just kind of gives you some questions you should be asking and things to look for if you're doing your own self-review of the documents. There's also a chapter in my book. I have a number one Amazon best-selling book called How to Legally Raise Private Money. And there's a chapter that's devoted to investors. So that's another way to learn, you know, read that book because that's really educating the syndicators on how to legally raise the money. So you're going to be able to, if you read the book, understand whether they did it right or they didn't and know what questions to ask. So I would recommend that. As far as this article on the amendments, 
to the accredited investor definition. That is available on our website. If you go to syndicationattorneys.com into the library, then select articles. There's about 40 different articles in there, but this one is called Accredited Investor Definition Expanded. And that's the name that you'll see on that article. And I've actually read Kim's book, so I can attest that it is a great source of information and definitely invaluable to just educate yourself as an investor, especially on the legal side of what's happening, but behind the deal and how the deal structure comes together. So I 100% agree that it's a great one to read. What I'd also say is if you want to know more about the legal aspects around syndication, check out episode number six, where Kim was on, and we actually went through fraud and how to detect fraud in a syndication. It's a really interesting discussion. And Kim, thanks for being on today to update us mm-hmm. on what's going on with the SEC. If there's future updates, I want to have you back to continue to get your thoughts and educate us on what's going on in our investing world. And with that, is there anything else you want to share with the audience in any other way they can get a hold of you? Or yeah. sounds like the website is probably the best place to start. Yeah, our website is very, very content rich. We do free monthly teleseminars every single month on a topic related to syndication where either I'll teach a subject or we'll interview someone who has a service related to it. And we've been doing that for over three years and those are all posted. So you can listen to those or read the transcripts. You can cruise the articles. And then also when people ask me questions, I'll post frequently asked questions. So there's a lot of those in there as well. Check out syndicationattorneys.com. Also, if you're interested in developing some investor marketing materials, then check out investormarketingmaterials.com. And we'll look forward to talking to you. You can schedule an appointment with us at either of those sites. It's pretty obvious how you can do that. Awesome. Well, great. Kim, thanks again for being on the show. And with that, folks, take that information and go out and invest like a pro. So thanks everybody for listening today. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Kim. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.